Please turn, if you haven't yet, in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, as Eric mentioned. Isaiah chapter 40, we'll be looking at, or a portion of Isaiah chapter 40. Well, in his book, Zeal Without Burnout, author and pastor Christopher Ash recounts what he calls a story from the edge. He's describing a pastor. He stared vacantly out of the window. So much to do, so little energy. His open Bible glowered, chiding his failure to read, work, wrestle, write. His inbox and entry ticked up and up, each task whispering, so much to do, so many people, such deep needs, so little time, so little energy. Prayer burden stacked up day after day after day. After these years of effort and pressure, he had nothing left. No resources, no emotional reserves, no intellectual energy, nothing. And so he stared with empty eyes. How had it come to this? Could he have done things differently? Might it have been avoided? Is there even now a way out? Those are haunting words, aren't they? And I, I wonder this morning if you might be able to relate to this man's experience. Maybe not his exact circumstances, maybe not the degree of his experience, and we can all feel overwhelmed, right? But what struck me was his sense of futility and, and hopelessness. Is there even now a way out? It doesn't take long for you and for me to experience a similar longing as we navigate life in a fallen world or, or waiting for something that seems like it's never going to come. Looking for something, something that will provide respite or relief or resolution to a challenging situation that you've endured. And Knowing you, you may well be looking to God in the situation, praying, hoping, but the delay has begun to seem long, and the hope you had maybe has begun to fade, and your strength of soul has started to wane, and you become weary, not just tired. Tiredness comes every day. When you get to my age, it really comes every day. Uh, and God remedies tiredness with sleep. Sleep is a gift from God that reminds us you're not God. You need to rest while I keep working. That's why God gives us sleep. But weariness is not resolved by sleep or vacations or leisure or social media. It's exacerbated by social media. Or the newest iPhone that came out this week. It's much more persistent. It can linger for days, weeks, years. Here's what I mean by weariness. 
This is how I'm defining it. A, a persistent fatigue of the soul that has lost sight of a better future. A consistent fatigue of the soul that's, that's just lost sight of something different, lost sight of a better future. And that kind of weariness produces more than yawns and tired muscles. It generates questions. It softens convictions. It weakens resolve. The text that we're going to look at this morning speaks to just that kind of weariness. Now, when we arrive at Isaiah 40, if, you, if you're familiar with this massive book, we, it comes to a, we come to a brand new section of the book. Isaiah chapter 39, the chapter just before it, ends with a message of disaster. Okay? After Hezekiah's reign, about 700 years before Christ, despite deliverance from Assyria, the major world power, that's Isaiah 37, despite moments of faith and revival, Judah will follow the northern kingdom. This is the, the Old Testament people of God. They're going to follow the northern kingdom in rebellion, in idolatry, in unbelief. And around 100 years later, it too will be destroyed, sent into exile by the conquering Babylon. But then comes Isaiah chapter 40. And it's like Isaiah wakes up from a dream to a vision of future mercies. That's, that's what's happening in our text. Isaiah, the, the exile hasn't happened yet, but what Isaiah is doing is projecting out into the future after Jerusalem is destroyed, after the people are languishing in exile in Babylon, and he mercifully delivers counsel that this nation will desperately need in the future. So that's the context, okay? He's addressing a dislocated people. He's addressing, addressing a devastated people. He's addressing a guilty people. And after years in exile, he's addressing a weary people, weary of waiting. And perhaps you are as well. And if you are, I'd like you to listen in to what God's Word has to say to such weary people. And because this is God's inspired Word, it's what God would say to us as well. So let's look together at Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 27. God's trustworthy Word to weary people. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Heavenly Father, th thank you for addressing us 
with your word. You, you don't merely give us beliefs. You don't merely give us commands. Ours is not a perfunctory faith. Lord, you, you speak to us. You address us. You draw near to us through your living, active word. And so I pray that today, Lord, as we explore this glorious text, you would speak again in our hearts. You would address us in our weariness. You would magnify Jesus Christ in every mind, every heart, every life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how do we get our arms around this message? Well, the way we're going to do it this morning, I, I want to explore this text under, under three headings. Uh, as Isaiah pastors us and speaks to us in our weariness, he gives us three pictures that help diagnose our hearts and that deliver us counsel that we desperately need in our weariness. Okay, so we're going to look at three pictures. The first part of his counsel, the first picture is this, and if you're taking notes, this would be point number one, the despondent heart. The despondent heart. Look again at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. So like a very wise pastor, Isaiah begins with a question. It's a question designed to break up the soil of these exiles' hearts. Two attitudes have entered their soul and are poisoning their perspective. Did you see them? The first one is this. Why do you say this? My way is hidden from the Lord. That's what they're thinking. So Isaiah looks into the future. He anticipates this acute isolation the exiles would feel. Think about it. Hundreds of miles from home, surrounded by pagan people, cut off from the land of promise, the very place where they were to live out their relationship with God. This land affirmed that they were indeed the people of God. This was far more than inconvenience. This was far more than a national emergency. This was a theological catastrophe. Their, their whole relationship with God, their very identity as the people of God was called into question by this event. The holy city, Jerusalem, in flames. The temple itself, God's very dwelling place on earth, in ruins. And so they think, does God, even, does God even see anymore? That's not an emotional statement. That is a theological statement. It strikes at the very nature of God. God is God's unaware of me. He, he's either too great to notice or he's moved on. Other things to do. Other people to bless. <laughs> you ever thought this? Where is God when I need him? The weary heart, this is how it works, the weary heart rarely stays stagnant. The spiral goes downward. The questions intensify. Look at the second attitude, verse 27b. And my right is disregarded by my God. 
That's legal language. My, my cause, what I care about, what, what I pray about, what, what I'm asking for, disregarded, dismissed out of hand. And the verb here in the original is a continuous one. It's as if he's saying, God keeps on ignoring me. I, I pray and he doesn't answer. I'm in need and he doesn't lift a finger to help me. I seek his face and I get a cold shoulder. Now, you see what's happening. It's not just God can't see. It's God doesn't care. And that's where weariness can take us. It can lead the heart to despondence, even despair. It, it, can, it can poison our hearts with those, those haunting questions. Do, does God know? Am, am I anywhere on His radar screen? Or does, does He care? We could reframe those theologically. Is God sovereign? Is God good? And as we sit here as Christians singing wonderful lyrics, we're not immune to those kind of questions, are we? The, think of myself, the, the exhilaration of our conversion, maybe, maybe a favorable season of blessing fades into a season of perseverance disappointments disorient us or suffering persists seems unending might be a career path that was frustrated brick wall and your future you don't you so know long-standing desires good, good desires godly desires remain unfulfilled Years of prayer seem unanswered. I got a few of those prayers. I pray them every single day. I'm still waiting. Uh, marital strife or maybe just marital disappointment seems unsolvable. And it's there every morning. And I bet in this room there's a diligent parent, a diligent, faithful parent whose child seems captured by the world and cold to the gospel, maybe cold to your love. So as a guest, I wonder, I, I, I wonder if you came here this morning feeling hidden or overlooked by God. Maybe, maybe that Feeling has morphed into accusations. Don't, don't you care, God? That's one of the most unfair things ever hurled at Jesus by the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Lord, don't you care? Nothing more unfair has ever been spoken. Perhaps slowly, maybe imperceptibly, maybe you're not thinking about it all the time, but every once in a while you begin to suspect God is not for me. And I've got to say this, the, the most immediate direct application of this text is for those paralyzed by guilt. 
That's what these exiles were facing. They, they deserved what they, what they got. They, they lived under a sense of God's judgment. Maybe that's you. You live primarily aware not of the grace we were singing about a moment ago, not of God's forgiveness, not of Christ's sin-bearing death on the cross, but primarily aware of your sin or your shortcomings. So many pastoral ministries, you see it all the time, I see it myself. So many godly Christians are hounded. I should be so much further along by now. Are you kidding me? God must, I'm just like one massive disappointment for God. I'm surprised He tolerates me. And maybe He's not tolerating me. (laughs) I guarantee you, you thought that. Or you think, you know, this sin I've committed, I've confessed, I've committed, I've confessed, same sin, so many times, is God just like, I'm done with you? I don't want to hear it. We can think that. Or, or you think, okay, God forgives, yes, but not this. Or maybe, I'm forgiven, okay, but I've been set aside by God. Potential for fruitfulness, future ministry, not for me. Isaiah is giving us a mirror this morning. Do you recognize yourself? If you do, then this text is designed for you. So that's the first picture, the despondent heart. That lays out the problem. Picture two begins to address the problem. And so, picture number two, the majestic God. The majestic God. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? This is the gentle response to those questions. Not so gentle. Have you, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So Isaiah begins his counsel with a few questions of his own. And it's so insightful how he proceeds. They're interpreting life through what they've seen, through the lens of appearances and circumstances, and their subjective interpretation of the circumstances. Can you relate to that? You look around, this must be happening. Isaiah calls them away from what they see to what they've heard, to what they know by revelation. And the particular thing they need to remember, what they have known, what they have heard, is just who their God is. Everything in life that matters hangs on who God is. Everything. And so, and actually, if we were to read the whole chapter, Isaiah has been describing God throughout chapter 40, and here he's actually summing up and applying his argument. And that's why he begins in verse 27 with, why do you say, O Jacob, I mean, he's incredulous. How can you say such things about God? And so he reminds him, don't you know? Haven't you heard? Heard what? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Now, in the original, there's actually three names for God, one after the other. It's literally, I'll translate it for you, the God of eternity, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint. 
So Isaiah piles up three names of God to, to rivet Israel's attention on God's transcendence. Are you kidding me, he says, basically. This is God we're talking about. It's like a cup of water in the face, isn't it? It's like, okay, yes, that's right. God. Well, what kind of God? Well, first, He is the everlasting God, literally the God of eternity. So out of the gate, Isaiah says, God's not like you. He bears no resemblance to you. He ha he's the God of eternity. He, he had no beginning. He, he will have no end. He does not exist in a temporal mode. He's, he isn't bound by the limitations and ravages and deadlines and pressures of time like you and like me. Time has no effect on him. Time is not running out on him. He lives in, he lives in an eternal now. He does not live by your timetable. Think of other verses in Scripture. A thousand years are like yesterday, Psalm 90, verse 4. A thousand years are like yesterday. What does that mean? It means he doesn't forget. All of history is like so many windows still open on his laptop. A, a day is as a thousand years, 2 Peter 3. So a single day, your day, your trial, always present in his consciousness. You think he's forgotten you? He can't. You think he's moved on? He hasn't. Think about this past, think about yourself, past trials, excruciating pain that you've already forgotten. He's still thinking about it and working through it and weaving beauty out of it. So if you're frantic or harried this morning, God's not. If you're anxious or fearful this morning, God's not. If you're jaded or disillusioned because of broken circumstances, he's not. You know why? Because he's not finished yet. Second name is the Lord. Do you, you see that in your text? It's, it's L-O-R-D, all caps. When you see that word, all caps, you probably know this. That is the personal name of God, specifically reserved for the people of God. It's, it's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush to remind Israel forever of his commitment to them. So he's not just eternal, he's personal. He's not just any God or the God or an abstract God. He's your God. The God who loved you and claimed you and gave himself to you, and bound you to himself with bonds of love. That's what Lord signifies. And thirdly, he's the creator. Verse 28, the creator of the ends of the earth. Oh my. Uh, throughout this chapter, Isaiah ha has been addressing the question, can God really deliver, or is he just a local God? who could handle the Assyrians, but not the Babylonians? Is, is he a tribal God? He's okay in certain limited circumstances, but, but he's not, you know, his, his reign has sort of boundaries. Certain things are beyond his job description, above his pay grade. 
So Isaiah takes us back to square one. He takes us back, actually back to Genesis 1. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Every square inch, including that pagan dirt in Babylon where you think God can't see. The ground you walk on, the space you occupy, the time you exist in life, circumstances, hospital rooms, hostile workplaces, Lonely apartments. He's there. He made it all. And He rules it all. You see the picture. Three things. God is transcendent. God is personal. God is powerful. Which is why the conclusion, 28b, He doesn't faint or grow weary. He never lacks the power to accomplish his plans. He's he's not like, you know, a basketball team that just moves the ball around and makes beautiful passes but can can never get the ball in the hoop. You know, beautiful style, but they lose every game. That's that's not God. Situations never get out of his control. They never need need revisiting. They never need need revising. They never need re-engineering. So however chaotic life may seem to you or confusing life may feel, God hasn't changed. He's not, he's not, you haven't sort of fallen out of his finger. Oh no, if I'd only held on to Eric better and things would be, no, he's, he's, he hadn't dropped you. He's got this. He's got you in a mighty omnipotent hand. Hebrews 1.3 remains in force. Jesus is right now upholding the entire universe and your life by the word of His power. So this, that little box we put God in, the exiles put God in, Isaiah just, just explodes it. He just explodes it. And I love what Isaiah does next. He concludes this picture of God with a very humbling final touch in verse 28. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Literally, there is no searching out his understanding. Search all you want. You'll never fully grasp the depths of God's knowledge in His wisdom, and His ways. That, so often, is my problem. I think I can. Or I assume I know what God is up to. I can search out His understanding. Or I demand that I should. That His actions conform to my expectations. That God gives me an explanation. If I could get over that, life would be much easier. Now, we know some things, don't we? Scripture gives us some parameters. God is convicting me of, of, of this sin, or God is teaching me patience with my children, or God is building courage for me in sharing the gospel with others. Yes, of course, you know that. But He's also doing 10,000 other things that you're totally oblivious to you. 
And, and, and he's also perfectly weaving those 10,000 things into the 10,000 things he's doing in the lives of other people and other families and other cities and other nations and, I would assume, distant galaxies. All of this God is working and weaving into a perfect tapestry of wisdom and righteousness and grace to the praise of his glory. We're meant to just close our mouths and worship. And so, to the weary heart, Isaiah essentially says, do not let your circumstances redefine who God is. Just the opposite. Let this picture of God redefine your circumstances. So, whatever your circumstances presently suggest, what, whatever your feelings are screaming, there's nothing in our lives beyond God's compassion or beyond His power. Which leads us to the third picture in this text. We've seen the despondent heart. We've seen the majestic God. And now number three, the empowered life. The empowered life. A transition begins in verse 29. See if you spot it. We've seen who God is, but now we learn what God does. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. The, the, the verb forms here, not to cause your eyes to roll back, but they, 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 are, they point that these are not occasional things God does, but they're part of who He is. So, He's, he's not only eternal, He's not only omnipresent, He's not only omnipotent. You know what else? He's a giver. It's who He is. He's so generous in his compassion, that he's just looking for a weak and weary person that he can just infuse with power. He's not like those people, you know, in marathons, those people, the watering stations in marathons, and people are running, and you got people with like cups of water, and they're just waiting for you. If you can make it to the table, they'll give it to you. Sometimes they even throw a bottle of water at you, and you may spill it. You may not even get the water, but they're there. God's not like those, you know, if I can just get to the, he's not saying if you can just get to the table of water, I, I, I may get it to you. No, he, he doesn't wait for you to make it. He's in the race with you. He's attaching a giant IV to you, infusing you in the middle of the race by the power of the Holy Spirit and believing His promises. He's eager to supply strength every moment, every step. He's a giver. You think of God that way? Just standing there, I, I, I want to give, I want to help? Are you weak? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just here. I think of 2 Chronicles 16. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that He might find the one whose heart is completely His, that He might fully support Him. Come on! I'm looking. I'm looking. I want to support you. I'm looking. I want to give you grace. I'm looking. I want to strengthen you. That's our God. He's an eager giver. Isn't that good to know? And it cannot be otherwise. 
because of who we are. So verse 30, Isaiah turns to us. Here's our diagnosis. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Forget you old folks like me. Let's go with the people who have most potential. Youths, they, they're going to faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. Note the stark contrast. Verse 28, if you've got your Bible before you. God does not faint or grow weary. Verse 30, youths shall faint and be weary. Same verbs. You're supposed to catch that echo. And then it intensifies. Young men, choice men, man at his best, his strongest, his most vigorous, they, they fall exhausted. I might render that they all together collapse. You see, to our, you see the contrast. Left to ourselves, we always fail. God never fails. But there's more than a contrast. This is, oh, if we can get this. this, this is, there's a secret right here to understanding ourselves that will cover a multitude of foolish and futile thoughts. Here's the secret. You want a secret? We are creatures designed to be dependent on our Creator. Self-sufficiency is not only a sin. Self-sufficiency is a, a violation of our very design. God wired us, created us to live in one and only one way, entrusting dependence upon Him. That's in our DNA. You are designed, I am designed to need a power beyond myself. Welcome to creaturehood. That's who we are. We, we're, we're created not to just, oh, wind up and I hope you do good and I hope you're the best Christian you can be. No, we're designed to connect to God and to stay connected to God. That's, that's who we're meant to be. So, how, how, do, how, how do we get it? How, how do we qualify for God's all-sufficient power? We, we've got a choice. There's only two ways to live in this text. We either collapse and, fa and fail, trusting in ourselves, or we thrive with God's sustaining power. You've got a choice. Which do you choose? Well, verse 31 shows us how to choose. It provides us the all-important answer, and here it is. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here is the divine design of joining God's all-sufficient power to my all-encompassing need. It's reserved for a class of people. It's reserved for those who wait for the Lord. That, that is one of my favorite verbs in the whole Old Testament. It's, there's a number of verbs in Hebrew for waiting. This is a special one. It's not just any kind of waiting. It's not like standing at the bus stop. It's not killing time. It's certainly not impatiently enduring. It, this, this verb always means to wait expectantly. 
to wait confidently. To rest knowing something's coming. We're always sure, we're so sure God is at work that we're happy to wait, knowing He's doing good and knowing that we're going to see it. may not be what we expect, but we're going to see it. So here's how I would define waiting on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord live with a confident expectation of His action on their behalf. That's it. Waiting on the Lord, we, we live with a confident expectation of God's work, His action on our behalf. To, if we put it in physical terms, you're, you're not slouched back in a chair, tapping your foot, thumping your fingers, nor are you scrambling around trying to outmaneuver your circumstances. You know how that is, it's trying to save it all. No, you're on your tiptoes, you're watching. You're waiting, you're hoping, you're trusting. God's going to act, I know it. I'm going to see it, He's going to act. He's going to do good to me. He's going to do good for me. So I'm happy to wait. I'm happy to smile. Can't wait to see it. Now, have you ever thought about this? It occurred to me, uh, why, is, why waiting? Why is waiting the mechanism by which God gives us His strength? It's simple. When we wait on God, we're doing what we were created to do, to live in trusting dependence upon our Creator. And when we wait on God, we glorify Him by confessing our utter dependence upon Him and His all-sufficiency to be all that we need. When we, when we wait on God, you know what we're doing? We're simply letting God be God. We refuse to, to, run a, to run ahead of Him, to get what we want. We refuse the impulse to deliver ourselves. We release our demands and we embrace God's provision. And here's what I found. <laughs> Like few other things, waiting will expose just what it is we're living for or what it is we're hoping in. The harder it is to wait for something, the more likely it is my hope is in that something. But when I wait for the Lord, submitting to His will, trusting in His timing, Resting in His faithfulness. We're really making a statement, aren't we? We're really saying, Lord, what I really want is You. Your will for my life. Your provision for my needs. Your timing in my circumstances. Your glory in my life. Lord, I want... The waiting soul is saying, Lord, I want you. And that's really what waiting on the Lord is about, brothers and sisters. Waiting, waiting is not God's way to deprive you. Waiting is God's way to change you. 
Look at verse 31 again. But those, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. You see that word renew there in verse 31? It actually means to change or to exchange. So those who wait on the Lord don't muster up their resources. Those who wait on the Lord make a trade. They, they exchange their weakness for God's strength. They relinquish their inability and they receive God's all-encompassing ability. And that's really the message of this text. This is God's word to us in weariness. We could put it this way. Overcoming power comes to those who, confident, who confidently rest in God's promises. That's the message of this text. Overcoming power comes to those who confidently rest in God's promises and what He promises to be for you and what He promises to do for you. If you're weary this morning and if you're not, you will be. Trust me. This is an invitation to weary people, to frustrated people, to hopeless people. This text is nothing short of revolutionary. It gives us a whole new way of living. Not by appearances, not by explanations, but by promises. Whatever you're facing this morning, whatever you... Whatever you're fearing this morning, you're not meant to face it alone. Hear the promise. Those who wait for the Lord will exchange their weakness for God's strength. And there is a, perhaps you noticed it in the text, there is a divinely calculated sustaining grace for you. Did you see that in verse 31? Sometimes they'll, they'll sprout wings like eagles. Sometimes God provides miraculous provision where you soar above seemingly impossible circumstances. If you need soaring wings to take you above the impossible, God will provide that. Sometimes we need persevering grace in, in, in the headwinds of trials and suffering to keep running. If that's what you need, that's what you'll get. Wings, running, and what's the third? Walk. All of us in the daily grind of life need steady, sustaining grace to walk, to keep sowing seeds in our family, to be faithful at work, to keep loving our neighbors, to keep trusting God. You see, and I love that last one because it tells us this, waiting on the Lord is not just for trials. It's not just for desperate circumstances. It's not something for young Christians that they will mature out of. Waiting for the Lord is the very substance of of the Christian life. Every day investing all of our hope in God. Every day submitting to His wisdom. Every day trusting in His timing. Every day watching, looking, expecting Him to act for us in mercy. Here's my go-to thought. Facing every day with glad expectations of God. 
This text confronts it. Is, is, that your, is that your mourning? This day I have glad expectations of God. That's what this text wants to position us to experience. You know, Isaiah makes some extravagant promises in this text, but if you're looking carefully, you notice he's yet to answer the most important question. He's yet to answer the nagging question. How can God do all of this in light of our sin? How can a holy God really be for us? Isaiah hasn't answered that question yet. But after about 12 chapters full of God's promises, Isaiah finally answers that question. The most important question. The life and death question. The eternity question. So Isaiah would tell us, keep reading, keep reading, keep turning pages. And then in Isaiah 52 and 53... He describes God's God's greatest act of mercy. Far greater than national deliverance from Egypt. Far greater than deliverance from exile, from from Babylon. This act of mercy involved the sending of another king, one who would look very different from Hezekiah. And he would come not to strut and look powerful like a king, but he would come to look pitifully weak, like described here. He would come not to be celebrated by men, <laughs> but despised by men, and mocked, and despised, and rejected, and pierced, and crushed. And in so doing, he would bear. He would pay for the iniquities and sins of all who would trust Him. And He would secure on that cross and in that resurrection, He would secure all of these promises. He secured, He bought all of God's promises to do good to His people forever. So we have a massive advantage over Isaiah. We have a massive advantage over the exiles. Christians don't wait in suspense for a Savior to come. He already has in the person of Jesus Christ. And because He has, because He has borne our sin and made us His own, He's removed every barrier to God's love and mercy flowing into our lives. He's removed every barrier to those who for those who believe in Him, for those who trust Him, those who wait upon Him, they can know, you can know, God will act for you in mercy. So are you weary this morning? He will act for you in mercy. Wait for it. Look for it. It may be deliverance, maybe wisdom, maybe quiet guidance, maybe peace in a storm, maybe strength for a battle. But he will act with exactly what you need 
and because we have such a generous Father and an all-sufficient Savior and an ever-present Holy Spirit, we can stare down whatever awaits us today, Monday morning, the rest of our lives. We can stare it down with glad expectations of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Word, sometimes it, it just amazes us. We, it exposes our unbelief. It exposes our hard thoughts about You. It, and sometimes, Lord, it just seems too good to be true. But Lord, we know it's true because You sent Your Son. We know it's true because you've transformed our lives. And so, Lord, we, we want, I want, I pray for this church, Lord, to be those who live with glad expectations of you, waiting upon you, looking expectantly for you to act in mercy. Holy Spirit, put this in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.